What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. As 2020 draws to a close and we're all seeking to relax and unwind, what better guest to have on the podcast than Claudia Hammond, author of The Art of Rest. She spoke to presenter and oceanographer Helen Chersky about how rest is very different from just sleeping more or lounging about the house. Together, they discussed the groundbreaking research from the Global Rest Test Survey, as well as the science of rest showing us how it improves our mental and physical well-being. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Claudia's book in the episode description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event. And I don't know about you, but there are many words to describe 2020. I think there are very few people who would say that restful is one of them. However, we all need rest. We know that we're not necessarily very good at it. And this year has really made a lot of people examine what they think about rest. So we have Intelligence Squared has done a, a, a good job here because they are very kindly right at the end of the year scheduled this event so that we can finish 2020 at least feeling, you know, ready to rest over the festive break. So let me introduce our fabulous guest today. It is uh, Claudia Hammond, who is a, an award winning author and broadcaster. You'll have heard her on Radio 4 as the presenter of All in the Mind, uh, all about psychology and mental health. And she's also a visiting professor in the Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Sussex. And she's the she's written all kinds of books on all kinds of subjects. But of course, the one we are here to discuss today is this one. It is The Art of Rest, How to Find Respite in the Modern Age. Claudia, let's get going on the topic of rest. And I have to say that I felt I had very mixed feelings. I actually put off reading the book a little bit for, because this, for me, you know, this is something I have to prepare for. And it felt like, it felt wrong to read a book of rest, a book about rest as a, as a work activity. <laughs> and I felt very conflicted about that. So why did you write this book, first of all? Well, I got involved with the topic of rest because I was invited to uh, apply with a group of four other people for a residency at Wellcome Collection. And we applied for this million pound grant to spend a part of two years on the top floor of the Wellcome Collection in London, looking at a topic in detail. And we didn't expect to get it. And we found to our amazement that we won the grant. And it was the most amazing, extraordinary experience because we then employed artists and poets, neuroscientists, geographers, historians, all sorts of people to look at the topic of rest from all sorts of different perspectives. And the composer composed an amazing 
piece of music. People did all sorts of different things. And what I really wanted to do was to know, well, what do a lot of people think about rest? And by rest, I mean a thing that you do when you're awake, not when you're asleep. So I'm not counting naps or sleeping. I'm counting being awake. And I wanted to know what it was and what people thought about it. And then collaborated with psychologists from Durham University on a, on a big piece of work called the rest test, big piece of research. And, and that's where my interest in the topic started. Well, let, we'll come to the rest test in a bit, but let's start with this idea of what rest is, because it's one of those things that I think it's quite hard once you start really thinking about it, what to define what is rest and what isn't. So after this great big exercise, what have you learned about what rest is and what rest isn't? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because, you know, doctors might prescribe rest to people. They may say, you know, you've, you've had this illness, this operation, you must get lots of rest. But it's not really specified. Does that mean sleeping? Does that mean sitting on the sofa doing nothing? Does that mean, oh, I don't have to work, but I can go shopping and go see all my friends? Well, you know, what does it mean? And so I think that rest has to be uh, something that's restorative. It's often, it needs to be intentional and chosen, not something you're forced to do. So if you think of, say, people in prison, particularly uh, recently, they're often spending 23 out of 24 hours in their cells. So they get a lot of time to rest, but we'll tell you it is not restful. It is far from restful. So it needs to be chosen and it needs to be temporary. And it's very hard to define rest without defining it in opposition to work or to chores or to other sorts of activities, because it's not just doing nothing. It is much more than doing nothing. But it is this thing that makes you feel restored afterwards. It has to be restorative for it to count as, as restful, if you like. So it's I mean, I'm not it's not a criticism of you, but it's quite an oblique definition. It, this isn't it, it's not the same for everyone, right? No, it's absolutely not the same for everyone. And we ask people in the in the rest test research, we ask people what sort of words they associated with rest. And a lot of people would say things like calming and relaxing and serene, the sorts of words you might predict. But others said uh, things like guilty or frustrating, frustrating or difficult. And so it's clear that people don't necessarily have an easy relationship with rest, that it's not something that's always straightforward and easy for people to do. And it's also clear that people can do it in very, very different sorts of ways. It doesn't have to mean lying on the sofa doing nothing. You know, 8% of people told us they found running was a thing that was really restful and that until they, almost until they were exerting their body, they couldn't turn off their their minds from those worries going round and round. And, and I've been trying to work out what the essence of rest is and I think one of the things is that you're able to feel you can do it without feeling guilty you're able to give yourself permission to do it you're able to feel better afterwards and you're able to feel that this is something you are you are allowed to do that it's okay for you to do it's interesting you, you bring that up because I'm I am one of those eight percent um and I did actually find it quite entertaining in your book that you're clearly mystified by us <laughs> so you know and I actually but I actually hadn't thought about running as restful until I read how you wrote about it because what you wrote about and we'll get to all of this is is just letting your mind wander and I realized that one of the things I've been doing in lockdown is actually cycling somewhere to go for a run which I've never done before but it lengthens the process of letting my mind wander and so I in the past week or two have thought of running as rest for the first time 
and I'd never just never thought of it like that before. Yeah. So, well, go on. What do you find restful? And, and you're think, not running. Well, well, well interestingly, like, so, oh, no, I do run. I really like running, but I had never thought of it as restful. Funnily enough, until the pandemic started, and then my favourite bit of the day during the first lockdown started to be going for a run each day. And originally, I was doing it during the afternoon COVID briefings, and then realised that wasn't very restful, and um, stopped doing that and started listening to music instead while I ran. But it was the bit of the day in the end that I would look forward to as the escape in a way and I think escape is one of the things that that rest that any restful activity that we find restful allows us to do but my favorite rest my favorite restful activity of all is gardening I find gardening so restful I think even though it involves you know planning and thinking and uh, sometimes you know physical labor there is just something about it which clears my mind completely of those things going around and it will be very very different for different people which is what we found in the rest test so it's not the same activities for everybody but they did there there are things in common with those activities. So let's get on to the rest test then. Now this this sounds like a gigantic exercise. So tell us like how many people were involved and what did what did it actually involve? And so, yeah, so this was done as part of this group uh, that we called Hubbub at a Welcome Collection, having our residency. And and it was mainly done by the group, the psychologists who were part of that, who were mostly from Durham University. But we also got input from all the people doing the other subjects as well. I think interdisciplinary working is something really interesting and valuable. And so we did have meetings where we asked other, everyone else there, what, what, what would you ask? What would the musician ask? What would the poet ask? And that was really, really interesting and valuable and then worked out how to turn this into a big online survey. We asked questions about all sorts of things, how much rest people got. We used established personality scales to look at things like personality. Uh, we did look at sleep. We looked at income and all sorts of demographic factors as well to try to work out what was happening. And we launched it on All in the Mind, the programme I present on Radio 4, and also on Health Check that I present on the World Service. So we had a global audience for it as well, which was really interesting. And then we just waited to see whether people would choose to take part. Now, obviously, it's a self-selecting sample, which is always the limitation of, of huge online studies. But what you, you what you get that makes up for that is such a big sample of people and a very different sample of people from if you, say, did the study within a university where, where students are often the people who are the participants. Um, and we waited to see, well, will people be interested in the subject of rest or not? And it took almost, I suppose, 40 minutes to fill in. So we're hoping that the... Um, perhaps, shall I say, the laziest people of all who may want, might want to just rest all the time would self-select themselves out and not take part because it would take so long and not get to the end and we could see you got to the end. And 18,000 people took part from 135 different countries and it was just absolutely fascinating to see what people said and and there were so many different surprises in there. It was not necessarily what we were expecting to find. Well, I have to show the audience here the the contents page. Now, I like people who play with their contents page. And I'm going to show this. I'm not sure if the audience can see, but your contents page counts down <laughs> from yeah. 10 towards 1, which yeah. is better than Matt Parker's book, actually, a mathematician who is, whose pages are numbered backwards. So you weren't as oh. counting. It's really painful to read. Anyway, <laughs> it's just your chapters that are numbered backwards. But tell us why that is and what those 10 chapters, you know, where, where, they, where the 10 came from. 
Yeah, so one of the questions we asked people was what was the activity that they found most restful? And then we counted up the numbers for those. We had, if you like, a, a top 40, really, of 30 of those activities. And I decided to focus on the top 10. And I have counted them down backwards, you know, Friday night, now it is, uh, chart style. I've counted down backwards from 10 to 1 of the activities that people found the most restful. And there were some real surprises in there about what wasn't in there. I didn't get to do a chapter on garden. Uh, sadly gardening came at something like number 14 I think so I could have done if I'd done 15 but um, it's not a top 15 is it you have to have a top 10 so that wasn't in there interestingly um, pets spending time with pets and animals was at number 12 and socializing was down at 13 chatting was down at 19 and drinking and eating were down at 20 and 21 which was really surprising because uh, I had guessed that a lot of people would put those sorts of things down But of course, they weren't asking people, what do you enjoy most? We were asking what people found most restful. And then we thought, well, maybe maybe the extroverts would find these activities like chatting and drink and being out socially with friends more restful. Because in theory, if you're an extrovert, you gain energy and you feel better from seeing other people. Whereas if you're an introvert, you feel tired out and exhausted by the people. But even when we looked at personality and took that into account, those things still didn't appear in the top 10. And the top five activities are all things that people tend to do on their own. And so I think this showed something really significant that actually in order to rest, to really truly feel rested, partly what we want is a rest from other people. Now, of course, at the moment when we can hardly see other people, that may all feel a bit a bit different because what we might be doing is dying to see other people. But I think that in normal times, when you are with other people, however much you love and like them, you've still got to take what they want into account. You've got to think about their needs. Uh, and I think this might be why um, watching TV, which we counted as, you know, that could be Netflix or anything on a screen, um, came at number nine. And I think one of the things that people find restful about watching TV is that you can do it in company with someone else and that's a really nice thing to do but you haven't got to speak to them you are just absorbing something together you can speak and we know that 20% of the time while people watch TV they're talking but you haven't got to and so I think there is something uh, distinctly unrestful about spending time with other people and partly we just want to get some get some rest by getting some alone time. Well, one of the things that I really liked about the book was that as well as going, you know, you went through the 10 activities, but woven along the way, there are all these sort of insights into what rest actually is. And so before we get onto some of the activities in more detail, I thought one of the most useful sort of baseline observations was studies you described about what the brain is doing when it's resting, because it's not nothing, is it? <laughs> No, and this is really interesting and surprised people for a long time. So for a very long time, uh, you know, up until the early 90s, neuroscientists assumed that if they put somebody in a brain scanner and got them to do a task like some uh, maths or memorising words and then got them to rest in between activities, they usually get you to stare at a cross on a screen and you just stare at the cross for a couple of minutes. And the idea is it it resets your brain to neutral, if you like. It resets you to be ready for the next task and then they can look again and see or which part of the brain is activated when you do maths say but then they found a neuroscientist called Barrett Biswell was the first to discover this in the early 90s he realized that in those gaps the brain was actually doing more rather than 
less. It was actually being more active while it was supposedly resting and doing nothing. And that this rest wasn't just random, it was coordinated. There were coordinated areas of the brain, regions of the brain, which seemed to be working together during this period when you're supposedly doing nothing. And when people, of course, what people tend to be doing is daydreaming. And that actually, when people concentrated on the math task, there were fewer regions of the brain involved. And this was followed up by other researchers, such as one called Gordon Shulman. And when he sent his paper, when he used the PET scanner, a different type of scanner, but when he sent his paper off to journals, the the referees who look and and peer review the article to check it's okay before it goes in the journal, actually sent it back thinking he got his results the wrong way round because there seemed to be more activity when the brain was supposedly doing nothing than when it wasn't. And this has now become very well established and it's called the, the resting state. And there is a net Network, a known network of different regions of the brain known as the default mode network which tends to come into play when we're supposedly doing nothing and it's almost as if the moment our brain is set free and we haven't got to concentrate our mind is all over the place and we are thinking about all sorts of things and daydreaming and that daydreaming is one of the things that people say they find restful so you know daydreaming came at number eight And we know it has benefits for creativity. We know it can make people feel better as long as it's not ruminating about something negative. If you're thinking back on conversations where you said something really stupid or worrying about what's happening tomorrow, that's not restful. But other sorts of daydreams really can be. So it is, I mean, there's two, one of the things I really liked about this was the categories. So we had number eight was daydreaming. Number five was doing nothing in particular. And it reminded me, I think there's a, a sort of t-shirt I saw once that said, I, I may look like, it may look like I'm doing nothing, but at a molecular level, I'm really very busy. And um, do we know much about what is happening? Like why, what are the, ben- I mean, if the brain's doing something, presumably there's a benefit to resting, but what's it up to? Yeah, it's interesting. There are various different hypotheses about this. And one is that a bit like uh, when you dream, actually dream when you're asleep, uh, one hypothesis is that we are consolidating memories during that time. One of the ideas is that when we daydream, we are thinking, thinking over things that happened to us, trying to make sense of them, and maybe making connections between different things that we hadn't thought of. You'll often have people who say, Famously, they're stuck on a problem and they go for a walk and their mind wanders and then the answer comes to them. We know that it seems to improve creativity. There's also an idea, which is quite an interesting one by Moshe Barr, who's at Harvard, who thinks that maybe it's there to help us solve problems and almost rehearse for the future. A lot of the time while we daydream, we think about future events and what might happen. And, you know, I can't be the only person who gets on a a plane. And when you listen to the emergency instructions, thinks about going off down that chute and how that would work and how would I get there and with that whistle and that might really attract attention if you're in the middle of the ocean who knows and that you think about those things and how it might be and and he thinks that perhaps we're almost rehearsing for if it happens and that if the worst does happen that then perhaps we draw on those a bit like you might draw on a memory or having seen a film of something you might draw on that to then work out what you should actually do and so there needs to be some purpose of it and trying out future scenarios might be one of those because we know it is something that everybody's do- everybody does and we know that it's something that people have written about for, for centuries and centuries. Well, let's come on to some of the specific activities apart from doing nothing in particular. So a good walk, that's, I, I, uh, that's number six on the list. And um, one of the things I liked in there was actually, it wasn't quite just about rest. There was a suggestion in there that you thought, or someone has suggested that conflict negotiators ought to have their discussions while walking because it would help. <laughs> Tell us right. a little bit yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, so there is this idea that walking is, uh, that walking side by side, walking is at the perfect speed and at the, that maybe people can 
understand better another person's perspective if they're walking along rather than staying still with them. And they've done you know, various studies where they get people to walk and, and see what happens to them. But we may have more empathy for other people's points of view if we're walking along with them. And there is something, I think, about being in parallel with someone. There's a, there's a, um, a concept within therapy known as porch sitting, which is when uh, you're sitting next to someone instead of opposite them and they feel that they can talk to you more. And many parents with teenagers will find that the perfect moment to raise a difficult topic might be in the car where they're sitting side by side rather than facing each other. You know, it's just less confrontational. But there is something, I think walking is fascinating because it is, it's the perfect speed to distract us. There's always something slightly new happening. So it's fast enough for that. But it is slow enough to let the mind wander because you don't have to concentrate too hard. And of course, it also has the benefit that you don't have to feel guilty about it because you can be resting, but you know that it is um, good for you. So uh, interestingly, 38% of people put down walking as one of their one of their top three restful activities, even though it involves effort. There is something about it that uh, seems to make people feel more relaxed. Well, one of the other threads in the book was actually about the biases in society that prejudice, prejudices against rest. So it's not just the guilt, but, you know, night owls are lazy because they sleep <laughs> in and, you know, you're lazy if you're not being doing productive things all the time. And, you know, that a loner, being a loner is, is a bad thing. So how, how much of a problem are these biases? Yeah, I think this is really true. I think that, uh, you know, some have said that uh, busyness has become something of a status symbol. And this is something relatively recent. So if you look back to, say, sort of 19th century gentlemen of leisure, they were usually gentlemen, the rich gentlemen, they would show off about um, going to their country house and uh, having friends over there and doing very little apart from fun things and then coming back to their city club and entertaining people there. Whereas now, if you look on something like Instagram and you look at, you know, famous rich celebrities, they're often showing you what they're doing um, rather than they may they may be the old one where they're lying on a beach, but usually they're showing you how busy they are. And there are studies showing that we do think, unfortunately, that busy people are better. And that makes us then want to be busy ourselves. And it raises our status by saying that we're busy because it shows how in demand we must be. There's an interesting study on this by uh, an American psychologist, uh, Sylvia Beleza, where they gave people two versions of a woman called Sally Fisher. And they gave people her Facebook status updates. And there was a lazy uh, version of a less busy version, I should say, of Sally Fisher. And she would say things like at lunchtime on a Wednesday, she'd say, I've got an hour for lunch now. And at five on a Friday, she'd say, that's work all done for me. No more work for me till Monday morning. And then there was a busier version of Sally Fisher. And she would put at one o'clock on a Wednesday, only got 10 minutes for lunch. I'll grab a quick sandwich and come back to my desk. At five o'clock on a Friday, she'd say, I've still got loads to do. I'm really, really busy. And then they asked people what they thought of her. So all they had was these rather dull, frankly, Facebook status updates. Now, they asked what they thought. They didn't say she should put something more interesting on Facebook or maybe not bother with those updates. But they did say that the busy Sally, they thought she was more organised and better at multitasking and had a more meaningful job. Whereas they thought the other one, just because she got a lunch break, clearly didn't have a meaningful job and wasn't so good at multitasking and wasn't so organised, which is extraordinary, really, because... We have got to a stage where it virtually to have an hour's lunch break, it kind of needs to be your birthday. You know, in many places, you need a good excuse for it or everyone will wonder, well, where, where have they gone for an hour then? And we know that with pe- more people working from home now, people take a, le- a likely and in studies are sh- already showing they take fewer breaks at home rather than more, even though no one's watching. And because they haven't got the natural breaks where other people you know, interrupt them and they have a chat about something that's not work related. 
Well, let's go through that. So the top five on the list were five was doing nothing in particular. Four was listening to music. Three was I want to be alone. It does sound like the pop charts. You're right. Two was spending time in nature. And number one was reading. And I, so I'm sure that that makes booksellers very happy. But reading is fascinating because it is not a natural activity. Literacy is such a recent thing. Have we really genuinely invented a technology that is more restful than being a human, you know, before in the pre in the pre-literate era. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating. And we were surprised by this. And at first we wondered, are people just trying to look good? Are they just pretending that they like reading? But then many thousands of people were happy to put down doing nothing. So I think we need to take people at face value here. 58% of people put this as one of their activities, particularly those who score very high on a scale of flourishing. There's a scale about how much you're flourishing in life. And those who were the high flourishers were more likely to put this down. But I think that what is interesting about reading is that although it involves cognitive effort, you've got to look at the words, make sense of them, relate it to what you've just read before. It also allows you not to feel guilty. So it gives you this key permission to rest because we all know reading's good. Although, of course, it wasn't always viewed like that. People used to worry about their teenagers reading too many novels and were warned off that, whereas I think quite a lot of parents would like that now. But we know that it allows you to escape, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. It's often about someone else. You escape into someone else's story. You can empathise with that person, put yourself in their shoes, but also reflect on your own thoughts about it. But also it seems to be a a jumping off point for daydreaming. And so we know from studies that not everyone, I know this will shock people, not everyone is concentrating all the time while they're reading. And psychologists slightly judgmentally call this mindless reading. And you can (laughs) tell whether people are doing it by using eye tracking devices. So if people are reading, and we've all had this, you you read down the whole page, you get to the end, you realise you haven't taken any of it at all you go to the top you do it all again you still haven't taken any of it in at all the third time maybe you try really hard to concentrate but by looking at people's eyes you can tell whether they're concentrating or not because if you are concentrating you slow down very very slightly every time you get to a long word or a complicated word and if you are not concentrating and doing the mindless reading, you just go on at a steady state all the way through. So you can tell that people are doing it. And we know that quite often people are doing it, which is OK, which is fine. Even reading my book, I will allow people to their minds to wander because we know it's good for them and we know it's restful. And so I think that might be part of the reason why reading does come top. And also what is really interesting here is that it was quite a struggle to find studies on on reading being relaxing. And when I did find them, they they tended to be in studies that were about something else. So there were studies I found on Tai Chi or yoga and whether that was restful and relaxing. And then people would do those studies, I'm guessing, hoping that those would come out well. And then as their control condition, because obviously you always need to measure things, compare them with something else, for their control condition, they would choose reading. And so they'd accidentally managed to choose what the people in our study said was the most restful thing of all. And so they would come out equal. And so it's not that, you know, yoga and Tai Chi are indeed very relaxing, but they came out on these studies level with reading. Well, so I, I think there is some there is something in it. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this who think you know, theoretically rest is a good thing. Yes, that's very nice. But I don't have time for rest. So first of all, could you address that? And also, what are the consequences of not resting? Is it a choice of, you know, is it, is it really true that you don't have enough time to rest or are you actually just causing yourself problems in other ways? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it is true that some people are, you know, genuinely have an enormous amount that they must do. And I think people in particular who are caring for someone, whether it's, you know, children or older relatives or whoever, at the same time as trying to work are very, very busy and there are not, you know, not enough hours in the day. But there are consequences to not resting. And we know that, for example, that half of the sick days taken are are down to work-related stress. We know that resting does lower blood pressure and heart rate. Also, it boosts our memory and our concentration, whereas we know fatigue does the opposite. It makes it harder to concentrate. It makes our memories worse. We can have actual memory lapses. It can blunt our emotions. It can lead to uh, accidents. But I think the effects on memory are fascinating because... It doesn't even have to be very long. I think, uh, you know, short breaks are underestimated in a way. Um, only 1% of um, senior schools in the UK now have an afternoon break. And there used to be an afternoon break much more commonly. And now, of course, there's so much to pack in that schools find it difficult to do that. But there are some amazing studies that were done by a psychologist in Scotland finding that just a 15-minute break has a significant impact on memory. And she even did experiments where she got people with amnesia to learn lists of words. And that's very, very difficult for people with amnesia because it's very difficult to make new memories. And she found that uh, on average, people could remember 14%, 1-4% of the new, new words they tried to learn. But if they learned the words and then they sat in a darkened room for 10 or 15 minutes, that went up to 49%, which is really in- extraordinary for that shorter time, for, it, for an intervention to have that sort of effect. And there have even been studies from South Korea on micro breaks, which can be just two minutes long. And they got people every hour or so in their offices to lean their heads back in their chairs and shut their eyes or go and stare out of the window or doodle, all the things you weren't allowed to do at school, or go and get a, a drink and bring it back to your desk. And even just the action of going to do that meant that people, an hour later, people's attention levels were still higher. And by the uh, end of the day, if they'd had these tiny micro breaks all day, their well-being levels were higher. And I think the trouble is that what we often do is we delay the break, particularly if we're up against a deadline. We delay the break to reward ourselves at the end. We think I'll get this done and then I'll go and make a cup of tea. And actually, because of what we know about productivity and concentration, if you possibly can, you'll get it done faster and better if you can go and have your cup of tea and then come back again. So if people are worried about their productivity going down because they have breaks, then they uh, then they needn't do that. But I think that rest is is important anyway. I mean, we found that the people with the highest levels of well-being had had an average of five to six hours rest the day before. People who had less than that had lower levels of well-being, but so did people who had more than that. So people who got, say, 11 hours rest the day before had lower levels of well-being again. So I'm not saying the more rest, the better. It's all about the rhythms of rest and activity and getting a, a, getting a balance in those and finding the moments when you, when you can rest. And there are all sorts of things that you can do if you, if you don't have time to rest. And one is to look out for any of those moments where there is some unexpected rest that you didn't know you were going to get. So if you have, you know, missed a parcel that was delivered and you've got to go and queue at the delivery office and it's really annoying and you see the queue and you think this is going to take 15 minutes and I haven't got time for that. In one way, it's an annoying waste of time. In another way, 
someone's gifted you 15 minutes of a rest. And if you try to look at it that way and think, well, another time, if somebody said, you can just stand and stare at the world going by for 15 minutes, that might be something you would quite like and something that can make you feel better. And I think observing those moments of rest can make you feel better as well as thinking deliberately, what are the things I can try to do to rest? What can I incorporate? And I suggest people that to people that they prescribe themselves 15 minutes of rest a day, say it might be in the middle of the afternoon if you can do that. Particularly if some people are working at home and may have a bit more control over their time, they may be able to do that. But to find the thing that really helps your mind switch off. So I deliberately now do this with gardening if I'm working at home. I would go outside for 15 minutes in the middle of the afternoon if it's not raining and um, just start deadheading a bit or clearing stuff up a bit or having a look, see how things are growing, what's happening. Because it always changes while I'm not looking because part of the reason I find it restful is it, it does the work without me. And so and it's amazing the difference that you find of that 15 minutes and then you can come back and do more if, if working is what you need to do. Well, you use this phrase uh, in one of the earlier chapters, I think, the discipline of rest. And it's interesting because it implies that, and I certainly see this with my, you know, university students where I, you know, tutorial meetings these days, actually for the past, well, five or 10 years, I spend more time asking them how much they're resting than how much they're working. Like in a way, it's kind of easy to work all the time because there isn't a decision, right? You just keep doing the next thing and you never have to think about it. But persuading them that it's okay to take a, even a short break is like it does require a different kind of discipline. And do you think our culture is really ready for this? How do we need to shift culture to make that acceptable? Yeah, I think we do need to shift culture to start to see it as important in the way that sleep has started to be import- seen as important. I think that for for years and years, you know, sleep was seen as quite lazy and people would, you know, admire Margaret Thatcher for saying that she only slept for four hours a night and this was seen as an, an ideal to get to. I think it is still the case that, you know, the larks are seen as less lazy than the owls. You know, no one says going to bed at 9pm. How enormously lazy is that? You could be doing things. Whereas larks like me, people, people will possibly suggest that I'm lazy for getting up late uh, even though I can stay up for hours at the other end of the day and so I think with sleep apart from the time of day I think the idea of getting a good night's sleep and sleep being valuable to your health I think there has been a shift in that and that is the same thing I would like to see for rest Uh, you know this is a, a call to rest if you like but not a charter for laziness because I'm not saying just rest all the time because we know that that didn't make people happier either I'm saying it's something important to value and I think one way of of valuing it without feeling guilty because so many people told us they felt guilty whenever they rested is to is to see that it does benefit your mental health and to say well just as I might go and do some exercise for my physical health although obviously that benefits your mental health too then what I'm going to do also do for the sake of my mental health is to ensure that I get some rest each day and that that is a really important thing too particularly I think now when when times are so stressful for so many well, just before we get to the audience questions, you know, you, you clearly spent a lot of time thinking about this. Maybe you had a restful life beforehand. I don't know. But in your own life, how has all of this changed what you do about rest? Well, you see, lots of friends of mine did laugh when I said I was writing a book about rest and why it was important. In my spare time was when I was going to write this book. Um, That's when they all get written, isn't it? Exactly, precisely. Yes, and they were going, but you can't do that. You know, you you uh, uh, you never rest. You're always working all the time. Now that is still kind of true. um, But um, what I do now definitely do is to is to think more about when I do rest and. I definitely don't feel guilty now 
when I do rest. I think, well, now I'm stopping and that is enough. And if I give my book in late, I give my book in late. I did give this book in four months late. So I was <laughs> you can't argue with that, there. can you? If you're a exactly. publisher, you absolutely exactly. cast iron yeah. excuse, yeah. cannot it disagree. <laughs> evidence-based, you see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like an evidence-based excuse. It's good. So let's get to some of the questions we've got. Um, okay, so there's a good one to start here. Tony W has asked, what's the difference between resting and relaxing? Yes, interesting question there. I think I think in one way they are fairly interchangeable. I think a lot of people, um, when we asked people the words that they associated uh, with rest, uh, relaxing was one of the most common. I think that the reason I prefer the word rest is I think it can incorporate more different things. I think it would be harder to, say, put running in relaxing than it would be in to put it into the category of resting. And so I think, I mean, it is, it is interesting because we got people to define it themselves in the study because there are no really good definitions of rest. You know, they are lacking, which is why it matters when I think when, as I was saying, when doctors prescribe rest and no one knows exactly what that is, that we need some precision really about what sort of thing it is. And so I think it is important that it is something that relaxes you. And I think they have an enormous amount in common, those two words. Well, we've got a question here from Emma uh, and she says she has a very busy brain. She has ADHD and so rest is something she struggles with. And how much research, she asks, is there about neurodivergence and rest? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, in a way, uh, this this study we did was the largest study that had been done so far. And one of the things that was very striking was how little research had been done on rest before. So obviously what we know is that there is a lot of research that's been done on neurodiversity and, and attention. There hasn't specifically on rest. And so I think what would be really interesting um, is to um, take, say, these activities and to to actually do some experiments where you, where you prescribe different activities for different people and some as controls to see which of these activities are the most um, appropriate for the most people who have ADHD. And I think, again, it may be, as with the neurotypical people, that it varies between people and that there isn't going to be one activity that's brilliant for everybody. So, you know, with this, I'm not saying everybody should do reading. If you don't find reading relaxing and restful, then that's not the thing to choose. So I think until that research gets done, I think it is a question of trying out the different activities and really asking yourself, is this something that I'm finding is, is slowing things down? for me is this something I find I can I can do and feel better after doing and am am I feeling restored by doing this or or is it making me feel more on edge is it is it not working at all well I'm just going to add a question to that which is how easy is it to kind of test yourself so for example if I'm training running relaxing or not I can tell whether or not the my training regime is doing me good because I can see my run times is there an easy way people can check you know they because obviously there's a perception of whether you're rested but there's also whether you're actually rested how, how could someone like Emma help measure how rested she is yeah I mean that's a really good question I mean you could you know you could measure things like your you know your your heart rate before and after an activity and that would be the way that that would often be done uh, in experiments but also those same experiments would often use scales where people self-report as well which just uh, you know literally ask people out of 10 how you know how relaxed how tense how anxious are you feeling so I think in a way it is a it is a question of of really sitting and thinking for a moment before you do an activity how 
how am I feeling right now? What what am what am I feeling? How is my mind feeling? What is happening? What isn't happening? And then to ask yourself again when you've when you've done after you've done something, but also to think later in the day. I mean, because I think it was interesting with the microbreaks research that it was the impact uh, was cumulative over the day and it was later in the day that people were then feeling better. So it might also be worth looking back on a day to see what were the rhythms of rest and activity in that day and what really seems to work for you. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Ilsa has a great question here, which is, so, you know, reading is good, fine, but does the the reading material and the medium matter? So she specifically mentions scrolling through a news feed, which is technically <laughs> reading, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you could bury yourself in war and peace or something. How much does the, does what you're reading matter? Such, such a good question. So what the studies seem to, seem to have found that it doesn't matter whether it's fiction or non-fiction, as long as you like it. And, and obviously people tend to choose what they what they like. And some people do much prefer non-fiction and some people do much prefer fiction. So it doesn't seem to matter to that extent. However, there are other studies showing that, and it doesn't matter if it's magazines, say, but there are other studies showing that repeatedly reading bad news does lower people's well-being and can make them feel more stressed rather than more relaxed. And I think, you know, a lot of us will have found ourselves during the pandemic constantly looking for more and more news on it. And, you know, the the uh, time spent looking at graphs has certainly been exponential as well as the um, graphs of cases themselves. And so I think that one thing that the research on looking at news suggests, and certainly during this time, is that it is much better to get your news once a day rather than all day. And so I think if you're scrolling bad news all day, then that's not going to be restful in the same way. There are some interesting studies done on um, the use of reading with pain. Uh, so for people with very serious chronic pain, and there they gave people, there was one study that looked specifically at the different sorts of stories but to see whether that uh, would make a difference. And there they found that the stories needed to be more complex and even puzzling they would work better than other stories so in fact they and so they use some much harder stories sort of check off and then they use some much easier stories and actually for the pain the harder the harder it was the better it was as from distracting people from the pain presumably because of the amount of attention that would require to concentrate on that and that it might take people out of themselves more and of course the other advantage with novels is that we know that the emotional effect can stay for days so you know Virginia Woolf used to say wait for the dust to settle and uh, after you've read something wait for the dust to settle and it will return but differently and and there is that thing that you get with fiction where you you think about the person's story you think about what happened and a couple of days later that scene might come back to you and you're thinking again about it and I think that that can be quite powerful. 
So to follow on from the reading question, we have uh, an anonymous uh, contributor who's asked about how is smartphone addiction and email addiction a problem with how is that uh, acting as an obstacle to getting proper rest? Yeah, I think that's I think it's a really interesting question. And I think it's interesting that even when we gave people a box where they could put anything at all as to what they found restful, anything to do with surfing the Internet or looking at your phone or messaging, those things just never never came up never came anywhere near these sorts of slightly wholesome activities in a way which which was quite interesting and even when we look by age you know that was that was the case too and so I think that the difficulty of phones is that they can you know interrupt you so I think if you want to do and 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 that you don't know what's coming that it's unpredictable what's coming so I think I think some things sometimes ever such a lot gets blamed on phones that shouldn't be blamed on phones but I think that particularly say late in the evening uh, is definitely not restful to check your emails late in the evening and a big mistake to check your emails just as you're going to bed because if there is a work email or even an email from a friend that's really really annoying then there is nothing you can do about it until the morning and it's going to really annoy you at that moment and I think it is definitely problematic if people um, are using their phones in the night to see what time it is because then as you turn it to see the time you also then see whether there's messages and who can resist not looking at those messages and that gets you distracts you again from from the sleepy mood that you were in and takes you back to real life and maybe to things you've got to do and things like that and so I think that alarm clocks for all would be a very good idea and never to use your phone as your thing that you look at for the time in the night is a really good idea and then I think also during the day it can distract you if you're trying to do a particular activity say you're trying to read then don't have alerts on beside you because you're not going to concentrate on those and the same even with I know a lot of people will use two screens at a time say if they're watching something on on tv or on a laptop watching a program again you will not get absorbed in the same way and may not get the same restful benefits if you don't watch that program undisturbed even if you're going to talk through it there's something different about taking your you have shared attention on that thing with the person you're watching tv with you don't have shared attention with what you're on the phone with uh, with that person who interrupts you on the phone so if you're so if you're listening to us right now if you're watching this webcast if you're doing something else at the same time this isn't as restful as it would otherwise be so put it away because we are very restful (laughs) that's That's right that's right Um, So Eric asks, uh, how conscious should resting be? Oh, I think that's a very good question. Because in a way, the last thing I want to do is to add this as another thing to add to your to-do list. Because, you know, to-do lists are problematic enough as it is and and one of our difficulties I think is is trying to accept that our to-do lists will never end that even if you can get through your list today I'm afraid tomorrow there will be something else that gets added to it and surprise things will happen water will come through ceilings and things like that so you will never get through your list and so I think you don't want resting to be another thing that is added to your list however I think it is good to consciously notice resting And I think then you might find that you get a bit more rest than you thought. And then you can consciously notice that rest and think, oh, I'm resting now and I'm going to enjoy this and I'm going to make the most of this. And so I think it is good to start noticing, to think, well, how much rest am I getting today? And was because people, as I said, find different things restful. So some people will find, you know, cooking cooking the supper is a restful thing and others won't but if it is a restful thing then notice that and think oh yeah I do, I do feel rested by that now and I think it's a good idea to try to become more conscious of when you're resting and when you're not so that you can really embrace the resting bits and make the most of that time in a way. Well we've got a very practical question here which is what's your advice for someone when they're dealing with a toxic culture in the workplace that doesn't value rest or which sees rest as weakness what do yeah. you do about that? 
I think that's a really good question. I think what they those people need to see is the evidence. Those bosses need to see the evidence so that they can start taking the rest seriously. And that, I mean, it's a shame to have to frame rest as something, well, it's good for you because, look, it's productive and can make you work even harder. But if that's the way that they will listen, then that may be what you what you need to do is to show them the evidence that, that shows that breaks are beneficial. And I think it's a shame that there are some, there are some places like packing centres and things like that and some takeaway outlets which give you know the shortest breaks possible in that in those times and that very much monitor people's breaks and I think that is a counterproductive thing to do because it's just not the case that everybody is trying to shirk working altogether and people will work more effectively if they do get their rest and so I think it is a is a question of convincing them of that by the evidence just as slowly some places are starting to realize that you know workplace stress is not a good thing and that in the long term as well as not you know not being a good thing because it's not nice uh, for people that in the long term it's not good for businesses either because in the end people go off work with stress and that is that is not helpful for for any workplace and obviously i guess the other answer is you should buy your boss you buy your boss this book for christmas uh, and let them relax while reading yeah. it over the yeah. christmas period and uh yes that will sort them out okay so here's now this is a really this is a good thinking question um i'll be interested to hear if there's any d- data on this so it's from someone anonymous if you have been working late is it important to rest before going to sleep or should you get more sleep how oh, does that one a, work? It's such a good question. It partly depends whether you're somebody who can, if you've been working late, then get straight to sleep. If you can get straight to sleep, then I say get the sleep. However, many of us find that if we've been working late, then everything, you know, mind is too much of a whir and you can't relax. And then that's where things like uh, having a hot bath, which does appear in the in the, at number seven, are, is a useful thing. And there have been really interesting studies about hot baths and insomnia. The ideal time, unfortunately, the best time of all to have a hot bath for insomnia later is in the middle of the afternoon sort of about 4 p.m ish which is i completely appreciate is not practical but was done in an interesting study with some very lucky students there but even having it and a bath hot bath immediately before bed can make you too hot so that you can't sleep and you get to sleep better if your temperature is falling but if you can have a hot bath an hour before you go to bed your temperature will still be falling when you get into bed and that can help the other thing that can help if you've say been working and then maybe it's because you've got a lot on that you're working so late and then you're going to probably carry on with that stuff next day so that you don't go to bed worrying about the things that you've still got to do. Uh, a really effective thing, and this was some research that came out from the States two years ago now, is to make a to-do list before you, just before you go to sleep, which could be on paper or on your phone, wherever. And even though you might think, oh, the last thing you want to do is think about all the things you've got to do tomorrow, there seems to be a sense in which it offloads it from your mind. And the evidence shows that people then can get to sleep faster. One, you don't have to worry about remembering all the things anymore because you know they're safely written down. But also it's that, well, that's for tomorrow and that's another day and it's all down on that piece of paper now. So that's all all right. And then people seem to be able to get to sleep faster. And so that could be something you could try. I said I was very happy hot baths are on the list and I had one of my discoveries of last winter actually was that so I normally do exercise again it's a theme on Saturday mornings first thing and I discovered if I came back and had a bath at 11am like I came back cold lots of exercise had a bath completely changed the weekend and it would it felt like such a terrible thing to do take <laughs> yes. a bath at 11am who does yeah. that yeah yeah highly it's, recommended it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny isn't it it's fun, it's again this guilt about the things and in one way I think you know having a bath is a good thing because at least you can convince yourself well I've got to get 
clean anyway. But you're right, there is something about doing that at, say, 11 in the morning, which just feels, you know, too outrageous. But what is the difference between doing that and doing that later on at 8pm or whenever? So why not do it earlier if that fits into your day and, and helps transform your day? I'm a big fan of hot baths myself. I think they're excellent. Well, the revolution starts here. Um, we've got a question from Tony. Going back to something you mentioned at the start, what country to country variations? So within between national cultures, I imagine this varies quite a lot worldwide. What did you find out? This was really interesting, actually, because um, what we found was so there were nine countries where we had enough people taking part in those countries to really make sensible um, comparisons. With the ones where there are fewer people taking part, it's, it's difficult to be sure about the comparisons you're making. But where what we found was that um, the top 10 was generally the same, apart from in Germany, uh, being alone came top, uh, whereas it came third in uh, the UK or if you look globally. Um, and in Canada and India, uh, being out in nature came first rather than reading those swapped around and other than that they were remarkably similar there were some differences with age so we found that younger people were more likely to put daydreaming and uh, exercise um, and seeing friends a little bit higher but still not in the top 10 and sex higher than as as restful things than older people but what I think was surprising generally was how little how few differences there were how people seem fairly agreed on these being the the main top 10 i guess there's possibly uh, variations between i mean so i have a lot of swedish colleagues for example and they they knock off work at four and go off for weekends in their log cabins somewhere and they they do have a very different attitude to it maybe they're doing the same things but it does seem to be built into their culture more maybe we should have more of that um we've got uh, a question down the bottom so very popular recently mindfulness apps what do you think of mindfulness apps? Yeah, so mindfulness is really interesting. And so that came at number 10, that counted as mindfulness or any any type of meditation that people wanted to take. And I think mindfulness is fascinating because it has been presented in a way sometimes as, as a panacea and that it is the solution to everything. And if only there was mindfulness in schools and prisons and every office, everything would be all right. I don't think that is quite the case. Some people find the apps are very beneficial. Others don't. There haven't been that many studies of using the of the apps in particular. There is one, a big one underway right now, but there haven't been that many studies of the apps in particular. There have been more studies of mindfulness generally and usually in relation to depression in particular. And there have been studies done of particular eight week courses of a certain sort of therapy based on mindfulness. Um, that's done in a very structured specific way and so people go for two hours they're a two-hour group session every week for eight weeks and then they have to practice quite a lot in between a lot in between actually and then which doesn't sound very restful actually no just having to do it (laughs) yes and I think a lot of people will say that at the beginning that mindfulness you know doesn't feel very restful at the start because people are you know fighting their minds and and feeling that they're doing it wrong and there's all these sorts of worries about it and that gradually you learn to just accept those thoughts and come and go and not be judgmental about your own thoughts but what's interesting in the research is that there's been lots of this done at the Oxford University Mindfulness Centre some of the best research has been done there and they have found that if people have had three or more episodes of depression so they've had depression and then it's gone away and it's come back and it's this is a, they've had it three times then um, the mindfulness could really make a big difference it didn't make as much difference if people had only had depression once or twice which is really interesting and they were a bit surprised about this at first and then thinking about it they think that maybe it's because 
it, it seems to really help with the people who find themselves ruminating. So that's when you can't stop thinking about negative things and that they keep popping into your mind all the time and that you worry over and over those same things again and again and again. And that is more common in people who've had repeated episodes of depression. So it may be that what the mindfulness is doing is tackling the ruminating and allowing their minds to, to, to not do that as much, which then has an impact on their depression. So... I think that we need more research on the apps and we need more research actually on who mindfulness is good for and who it isn't. And there's remarkably little on that. And so it does vary in that even in a, even in a study where it's found to be quite effective, every, not everybody will find it effective. And I, I scoured to try to find, is this based on personality type? How, how can we work out, is this going to be something that's for me or not? without just trying it out and there don't seem to have been enough studies done for us to be able to give an answer to that which means you know if you're interested try it out and see see what happens but also I think that if you don't want to practice it all the time there are still things that we can all take from mindfulness to try to do uh, to just bring into our lives generally which is partly just observing all the things around you more wherever you go observing what is happening with the five different senses what can you see what can you hear observing how am I feeling at this moment how is my body feeling am I feeling rested am I not feeling rested and I think bringing some of those things in can can bring some restfulness as well well perhaps following on from that and perhaps the lines are a bit blurred but um Tony asked what about meditation is that an extreme form of resting or is that something else Yes, I mean, in a way, mindfulness is one type of meditation. And so you, you, once upon a time, they would have all been called called meditation or called different things in ancient practices. And so it is interesting that the people who have been, um, there are these kind of um, super meditators who have meditated for many, many, many thousands of hours. And they, there you can see some permanent changes um, in their brains, in their, in their rested state in a way that they have managed to um, achieve. And then studies, say, from Richard Davison in Canada will show that just two weeks of activity, so two weeks of, um, sorry, two weeks of mindfulness meditation can show some difference in, in activity, the activity that you can see in the mind. So I think it is definitely worth, um, it's, it's definitely something worth trying if people like the idea of it. I've always so I've always thought it's probably not just not suitable for me and I've never had any I've tried a bit and just gone I don't I'd rather run around but I would be really interested to see that research because I might be wrong but I can't be bothered to persist through the training to find yes. out yes yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. okay so final question here from an anonymous attendee which is perhaps a slightly depressing question is rest a luxury in 2020 oh such an interesting question actually I think uh, and, a, and a really good question I think so I think for some rest, yeah, rest rest is a luxury because some people are so busy. And I think particularly, you know, if people are trying to hold down two different jobs and care for people, then, you know, trying to say, well, you, you must rest as well, I think is difficult. But I think it has become seen as a luxury when it needs to be seen as more of a, of a necessity and more something that is good for us and good for our mental health, like sleep is. So I would like it not to be seen as a luxury and to be seen as something that we need to do, but not something that's another chore. I want resting to be enjoyable as well. Brilliant. Well, that is a fabulous place to, to finish. Thank you so much, Claudia. I think everyone should read this book because uh, especially as you're resting over Christmas, you know, it's it's really the sort of perspective change that I think a lot of people need. And now is a good time. Even though the book's been out for a year, it feels like it's having a second, second, uh, second wave's the wrong phrase, isn't it? A lot of enthusiasm at the moment, which it well deserves. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you to the audience. And I'm now going to hand back to Connor at Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket, 
Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.